Hey everyone, Eric here. Just before we get to today's show, I want to let you know that we're offering our podcast listeners a special 20% lifetime discount to the China Africa Daily Brief. Now that's the newsletter that Cobus and I produce every day that provides the most comprehensive digest of everything China's doing on the continent and now increasingly throughout the global south. In addition to the newsletter, you'll also get full archive access to the website and the China Africa Experts Network as well. To get that discount, just go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe and use the promo code podcast at checkout. Once again, that's chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witts University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staten, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, you may not remember this, but a few years ago, you and I spoke with a Ghanaian scholar from the University of Adelaide by the name of Kweko Odankwa. And back in 2019, when we spoke with him, he was doing research on the role of the Chinese in the central business district of Ghana's capital, Accra. And he found something very, very interesting because he said initially when the Chinese came to Ghana, they played the role of the traditional supplier. So a wholesaler from China would provide retail goods to a middleman in Accra who would then sell them to retailers. And what Kweku then found out is that in time, Chinese wholesalers would then change the role in that relationship. So instead of just supplying wholesale goods to middlemen and to retailers, they actually set up shop and became their own middleman. And they cut out the coordinators and the other middlemen in, in, in Accra. And that really changed the dynamic of the business environment in Accra. And it's very interesting because a similar phenomenon now seems to be taking place in Kenya's fishing sector. Chinese buyers are moving into the market and simply cutting out the middlemen. Now, in some senses, we can say, well, this is good for consumers. Consumers may be back in China who the costs of fish are lower. It's also more efficient in some respects, but it's having some profound impact. And once again, it comes back to the theme that we've been discussing on this show that the Chinese are playing by a very different set of rules, not just in politics and public policy, but it looks like also in commerce as well. Yeah, like they're really going with this idea of disrupting industries. Um, but the problem is that the industries that they're disrupting are frequently quite fragile and within fragile economies. And that then leads to quite significant political backlash. And what's happening in Kenya in the fishing sector is that they're driving down prices to the point where locals simply can't compete. And this came out in a new report published by the East African newspaper COVID, Chinese Dealers Drive Kenyan Seafood Traders Out of Business. It was written by Alan Olingo, who's a journalist at the Nation Media Group, where he's also the regional editor. And he joins us on the line from Nairobi. A very good afternoon to you, Alan. Good afternoon, Eric. It's wonderful to have you on the show. Some great reporting here. And just very quickly before we get started, I want to give a shout out to our friends 
at the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University's School of Journalism, who not only support our show, but also provided you with a small grant to do this assignment. So, okay, with that out of the way, Alan, what's going on here? You wrote, let me just quote from your story, the arrival of Chinese dealers who have the money and the ready market connections back in China is changing the nature of this business. Tell us more about what's going on. Uh, basically, um, uh, the, the, the Kenyan fishing uh, sector has uh, seen uh, a transformation uh, in the last few years. And uh, interestingly, you know, the, the transformation has been driven by uh, the, the, the Chinese. Uh, initially, um, I believe in 2017-2018, uh, we did an interesting story of um, Kenya importing a lot of its uh, tilapia fish from uh, China. Uh, yet uh, we boast of uh, the biggest uh, or sort of the largest uh, freshwater lake in the continent. And uh, this uh, picked a lot of interest. Um, but now again, uh, we, were just, we went back to the numbers and uh, started looking at uh, the export. Uh, who are we selling to? And uh, once we discovered that uh, lobster, which is a, a, a premium dish in, in, in a lot of tables, uh, is uh, one of our top uh, fish exports, I, I really wanted to find out uh, where is it headed. And uh, the moment I, I learned that uh, Asia and uh, China, for, for, for that matter, being um, the biggest buyer, I, it, it piqued my interest. And I wanted to understand how, how this uh, ends up in Asia. And uh, that's how I stumbled on this story where we, we found a lot of Chinese uh, middlemen and uh, Chinese uh, businessmen coming in and, you know, just literally taking over the business from uh, the, the, the Kenyan fellas. So how did the business work originally? Like, what, what, was, the role, what was the relationship between, between the, middle, the Kenyan middlemen and, and the, the people doing the actual fishing? And then, you know, in, in which, which of those two roles did the, did the Chinese step into? Originally, uh, the business worked uh, in, in, in a very simple manner. Um, there was the local uh, Kenyan uh, middleman, who basically would uh, purchase uh, the, the lobster from uh, the fishermen who went out to sea. Uh, one of the things that we need to understand is that uh, lobster fishing is uh, very different uh, from uh, any, any other form of fishing. Uh, because uh, one, it is uh, time consuming and uh, it, it, it's driven by volumes even for the fishermen to make uh, ends meet. Ordinarily then, it meant that uh, the fishermen were at the mercy of uh, the middleman. You know, because uh, whatever you bring, uh, the middleman would give a price. Then the middleman would uh, connect with the buyers, who are the Chinese buyers, uh, back in uh, China, Hong Kong, and, uh, you know, the, 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 far, the far east. But uh, with the time, uh, as uh, we opened up uh, the market to foreigners to come in, uh, we started seeing a lot of Chinese uh, coming in, uh, supporting the middlemen. You know, so they become the financiers of the middlemen. Then uh, with the time, they started eliminating the middlemen by becoming the middlemen themselves. And uh, they made the business uh, quite interesting because uh, not only were they now buying the, the, the lobster from the fishermen, but they were actually paying in advance the fishermen. So they were sort of giving the fishermen uh, that drive to go into the ocean and, uh, you know, catch the best. So uh, here we had a fisherman who was financed to go do his activity, and uh, a buyer who already has a ready market back in China. And uh, this basically aged out um, the, middle, the Kenyan middlemen. 
And uh, that is now where we were getting our story from. And how long has it been since the Kenyan middlemen have been shut out of this and the Chinese moved in to take up that role? It's uh, actually right now, this, this should be the second, it's actually it's the third year. We are starting the third year in 2021. Yeah? Uh, this is something that uh, started uh, in 2019. But uh, COVID accelerated this because, of course, you know, uh, with uh, a lot of restrictions and uh, funds uh, limitation, uh, even the, the Kenyan businesses that uh, were into this export uh, suffered. And um, this left uh, the money to fail us. Uh, again, the businessmen call them the Chinese uh, with an open uh, market to, to, to just take charge. You know, just to be clear, the people who are mostly, the, the most upset people about this situation are the these kind of Kenyan middlemen who have been pushed out of their business. Not so much the Kenyan fishermen, right? Because, because you know, like uh, the way that I understood the, your, your reporting was that in some ways the fact that they, that that the Chinese are paying in advance for, uh, you know, for these lobster catches means that it kind of balances out bad days and good days for them. And they, they you know, kind of, it, it actually helps on them on the on the fishing side it provides a little bit more stability for them um and the, the and the people who are really being undercut are the kenyan middlemen am i am i understanding that correctly yes you're correct and so what, what are the middlemen like what, what are their complaints essentially like you know we, we can understand that they you know that they're complaining just about diminished business but you know are, are they are they are they do they feel that the chinese should be kind of like kept out of this middleman position completely now, well, I, ideally, the way um, the business, uh, according to them, is supposed to operate is um, some level of partnership, you know, uh, basically what used to happen before, where uh, they were the front of the Chinese businessmen. Uh, as it is right now, they are no longer the front. The Chinese business, businessmen have just come in and, uh, you know, uh, taken charge of the business as it is. So they've eliminated uh, these fronts. And uh, that is now where the, the competition becomes uh, a little bit skewed uh, against them. Because one uh, is, is the financial might that uh, these fellas come in with. Uh, then the secondly is the incentives that they are giving uh, the, the fishermen, you know, uh, those extended credit uh, facility where uh, you, you will get up to $3,000, $4,000, you know, to go uh, fish, uh, but you're given a timeline and uh, also conditions of um, the, 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 the scale or the quantity of lobsters that uh, you're supposed to have uh, back with the Chinese at a particular moment. So I think for them it's just uh, the element of unfairness in, in, in terms of competition, uh, where they feel like uh, foreigners, you know, uh, come in and uh, take, uh, quote-unquote, their business and uh, leave them uh, with, with nothing. Well, I mean, the way that the story and the headline is structured is that Chinese dealers drive Kenyan seafood traders out of business. It implies that it's a negative thing and that the Chinese are somehow at fault for this. But isn't that really just the way that business works? Is that, yes, that was the way it was, but things change. And incumbents who used to own a space in business oftentimes are challenged because there's new business models, new technologies, new ways of doing things, pandemics that come along. All sorts of factors come in to change things. I mean, we used to have horse and buggies driving around town, and the horse and buggy operators were really upset that the cars came in. Well, okay, but that's just the way that change happens. The Chinese aren't doing anything illegal here, as far as I can read from your article. They're just cutting out the middleman. 
And so what's wrong with this picture? Ideally, you know, this is an uh, export uh, business. And uh, of course, uh, with, with, uh, when, I, when I spoke to several government officials over this, and uh, one of the things that uh, came out was uh, one of the requirements uh, for regist registering businesses, especially for foreigners, is to have uh, local uh, partnerships, you know, uh, where it, it, it cannot be fully foreign-owned without uh, that local shareholder element. And uh, when you look at these export businessmen, uh, export businesses, uh, who we are calling the middlemen, uh, that is where they, they, they are basing their argument. That uh, previously some of us were in partnership with these fellas, and uh, eventually we were kicked out and they took charge, you know, after, after learning the tricks of the business and all that. So yes, um, ideally there is really nothing illegal uh, that uh, we, we, we see with the, what the Chinese have done. But uh, when it comes to how the businesses operate, how the export uh, business is supposed to operate according to the Kenyan laws, uh, there is an element of illegality where a foreign-owned uh, company comes in and ages out the local-owned uh, farms, in, you know, and, 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 and that is where the bone of contention comes in. So it seems like the headline of the story should actually be Kenyan government fails to properly regulate fishing industry. This is a governance question. This has nothing to do with the Chinese. I mean, sure, the Chinese are acting maybe out of bounds, but at the end of the day, they should be subject to the laws and regulations of Kenya, and Kenya should enforce those regulations, right? Yes, 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 you're right. Yes, you're right. I mean, I, I just don't see why the focus is on the Chinese, because it could be the Lebanese, it could be the Indians, it could be anybody. But here in this instance, it's the Chinese. But at the end of the day, the problem is not with the Chinese. The problem is with the weak enforcement of whatever laws and regulations are there to protect those middlemen, if that's in fact that those are the laws, right? Yes. Well, I guess the, another problem comes with the fact that that of the the fact of the power of the Chinese market, um, you know, and as as you know, there, there's a, a growing appetite for for fresh lobster, which you know that uh, you know in China that kind of warps economies around the world. Um, can you talk a little bit, um, Alan, about about the the, the lobster specific aspect of this? So you know, so what, one of the complications of the situation is that is that the lobsters have to be delivered alive, um, and also um, you know, and they have kind of have to. It's not like a, a big like mass net kind of big fishing net situation. They have to essentially be hand caught, right? So how does that work? Uh, you know, um, uh, I spoke to one of uh, the, the fishermen, uh, and he was actually the chairman of, of, of uh, one of the regions that uh, supplies uh, the, the, the largest quantity of uh, lobster uh, to, to the Chinese. And uh, he mentioned that um, ideally, on average, uh, they're expected to bring on board uh, to the Chinese per catch uh, up to 50 kilograms. And... Uh, the advance payment, for instance, and, and, and that's why it, it, it makes this uh, relationship with the Chinese work. Uh, this is a, a very labor-intensive activity, uh, you know, uh, hand-picking and all that. And again, not just hand-picking, but uh, you have to get the best quality. Uh, this advance payment uh, goes into, you know, paying uh, these uh, fishermen that you will bring on board, uh, you know, your team. Uh, you know, then uh, there, there's also the, the skin divers, uh, you know, and uh, the hand catchers that have to be paid in advance as you also try to make money out of this. Then the, the other bit is um, what you've mentioned, uh, the refrigeration and also, um, you know, just the transportation from uh, Lamu itself 
uh, for, for purpose of uh, the discussion, Lamu is around um, uh, 300 kilometers uh, from uh, the main port, our main fishing port, which is in Mombasa. Uh, you can imagine uh, this has to be uh, tracked uh, from Lamu to Mombasa. Uh, right now they are using... Uh, uh, they are using uh, aeroplanes because, again, of, of, of the terrorism question within Lamu, they're, they're, those areas are not, are not accessible on that highway. So um, you look at all that and you realize uh, why the Chinese are able to thrive in this trade because it's not only a labor-intensive uh, activity but also requires a lot of uh, resources to ensure that the final product gets to China in, in, you know, in the element that is required. And in your reporting, you found that the Chinese just aren't a normal player. They have a disproportionately large role in the Kenyan lobster trade. Tell us more about that. When you look at uh, the, the trade, the way it's structured, uh, as, as, as I've explained uh, before, uh, the Chinese does not just come to offer the money. Uh, it's, it, it's one of those businesses, um, probably like uh, minerals, where by the time you are mining this, uh, you already have figured out where you're selling it. And to me, when I looked at the story and when I, I was talking to these uh, businessmen and also the fishermen, I realized that um, without the Chinese, uh, the business actually would not uh, thrive at all. Because one, they are the biggest market. And they... When you look at these players, when they come, they don't just come to, to fumble or, you know, or, or to, to fumble in the business. I mean, uh, they, they come knowing that um, they already have their market. And that ready market is what drives this trade. And that is what makes the Chinese important in this trade. I mean, when you look at, uh, we still also have established uh, Kenyan local owned farms that uh, are in this trade. You know, the Pwani Sea Life, the Sea Harvest and the Trans-Africa. Their market still heads to China. Uh, and, and, and that's the interesting bit. As much as uh, they, they've figured out how to, you know, work around uh, the logistics of this business, they still have to depend on the Chinese as their final destination for these lobsters. So um, for the China guy to walk in into this business and uh, set up an office, basically it's an end-to-end -end, uh, kind of uh, deal. And that makes them extremely important, you know, in, 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 in the whole arrangement. So that means the fishermen, as Kobus pointed out, still must be pretty happy with all of this because there is a huge market with lots of demand for Kenyan lobster. It's really just the the middlemen that we're talking about here, just to emphasize that. Actually, uh, the biggest winner in this is the fishermen. You know, uh, they're, they're, they're the biggest winners because uh, initially they were explained, you know, they were at the mercy of uh, the middlemen and also, uh, you know, the local uh, exporters. But you see, the, the, the Chinese coming in have flipped uh, how the business is done, and this is now to the advantage of the fishermen. You know, uh, from uh, ideally walking, having your own drive to, you know, go into the ocean, spend all those hours, come with lobsters, and someone determines how much they'll pay you. Uh, it has flipped to the sense that uh, someone pays you in advance. You know, you have a pre-arranged uh, arranged deal with a Chinese uh, dealer. And you walk into the ocean already with your money in the pocket. So, yes, in, in, in all of this, uh, the Kenyan fisherman uh, is uh, the biggest, biggest uh, winner. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting situation because, as you also point out in your article, it's, it, ha it comes uh, you know, against the background of all of these complaints from Kenyan fisher, fisher people about, um, about the importing of Chinese fish. So, obviously, the lobster situation is all about exports. It's all about kind of you know, t selling Kenyan um, lobsters in, you know, in Asian markets. Whereas, but at the same time, there's... there's 
there's also this problem of of tilapia kind of being imported from farm tilapia being imported in huge amounts into the Kenyan market from China. So how 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 you know kind of are, are, when when we're talking about the two groups of, of fishermen involved, are, are these the same? fishermen kind of now switching to lobster or are these two different fishing communities uh, these are two different fishing communities uh, the lobster is being done on the indian ocean that is on the kenyan coastline um the the tilapia fishermen who are actually now the biggest losers uh, in, in all of this is uh, the, that's in the hinterland uh, lake victoria it, it, it's a lake that we share with uh, uganda and tanzania and uh, on, on, on that element, again, uh, you, 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 you tend to look at it and uh, you realize that uh, as much as uh, on the Kenyan coast, coastline side, the fishermen are happy, um, on the hinterland, uh, I mean, you look at Lake Victoria and you realize the fishermen are actually struggling because Kenya imports um, a lot of fish uh, from, uh, a lot of tilapia, sorry, from uh, China. For instance, um, last uh, year by September, the, the, the latest data that I got in September uh, clearly showed that uh, we spent almost $10 million importing uh, tilapia from uh, China. And uh, this comes on the backdrop of COVID. Uh, in the previous year, in 2019, uh, the imports stood at uh, 19, $18.68 million. You can clearly see how much uh, of that is being uh, taken away from uh, you know the Kenyan fishermen, and the preference again by by, by Kenyans on the Chinese uh, tilapia as opposed to the Kenyan one is uh, basically in terms of cost. You know uh, the Chinese tilapia comes in cartons and uh, it's uh, sold in kilos. You know, so um for instance uh, a box a carton has around sixty three pieces and. Uh, when you walk into the market, you will only spend thirty dollars uh, to get sixty-three pieces. You know, yet ideally, um, when you try and buy uh, a locally farmed tilapia in 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 any Nairobi restaurant, uh, it will set you back around six dollars for a piece. So you can clearly see the the, the disparity and uh, how this importation uh, is uh, literally hurting uh, the, the the Kenyan fishermen in the lakes uh, and, and not in the ocean. Well, there's a couple issues here that I'd like to get your take on. So first, back in 2018, this issue came up as a really you know, stinging debate between President Kenyatta and the Chinese. Now, the Chinese came back in, with some data that said that the Lake Victoria output of tilapia is simply not enough to sustain the Kenyan market. So even under the best of circumstances, Kenya would have to import tilapia from somewhere. Maybe it's Tanzania, maybe Uganda, maybe China. But he, Ken, President Kenyatta was under such pressure back in 2018 on this very issue from the Kenyan fish lobby that, uh, and I'd like to read you here a couple headlines from your own newspaper, The Nation, and do a little timeline here. Back in October 16th, 2018, there's a headline, President Uru Kenyatta bans Chinese fish from the Kenyan market. And that was done in part to appease the pressure he was under from the hinterland fishing lobby, as you talked about, that works on Lake Victoria. Then on October 31st, just about two weeks later, uh, we got word that China threatens Kenya over SGR loan. And this is from Citizen News, another Kenyan newspaper. Uh, let me quote this here. Acting Chinese ambassador to Kenya, Li Xuhang, had on Tuesday warned that Kenya could face trade sanctions for imposing a ban on Chinese fish, raising concern on the fate of of the Chinese-funded projects such as the Standard Gauge Railway. And then, 
November 2nd, so about three weeks from when this all began, a headline in the nation newspaper, Kenyan government suspends ban imposed on Chinese fish. And then uh, from Citizen Digital, China walks back trade war threat with Kenya over fish ban. So it sounds like China's playing hardball with the Kenyans on the frozen fish. And that at the end of the day, we talk about how China doesn't interfere in the internal affairs of other countries. China is, it's all about win-win development. This doesn't really seem like it's very win-win. It doesn't seem like it's very fair. What was your take on that episode back in 2018 when the Kenyan government tried to assert itself, tried to exercise agency in the relationship with China, but was pushed back? I mean, uh, just to offer context, one, um, I really don't think uh, there was any ban on Chinese fish. No, no, it never went through. There was no ban, but there was a proposed ban that the Chinese shot down. Or at least that's the way your your newspaper's headlines characterized it. Yes, yes, and and, and that's where I was getting to. Um, when you look at it uh, from the way President Kenyatta was trying to say was, um, uh, I, I remember he was launching some uh, fisheries project, and uh, he mentioned that, uh, come on, uh, we, we don't even know how safe this food we are eating from China is. Uh, why don't we really... Um, reduce the importation, you know, we, we, we can tell our people to, you know, uh, put some uh, bottlenecks for them so that the importation becomes difficult, then uh, we encourage our fishermen. And of course, the Chinese really acted uh, strongly. Uh, I, I remember the acting uh, ambassador then uh, issuing the statements you've said. But uh, in, in, in reality, that is what we face right now, um, where we, we, we want to believe that uh, we have this free trade and, you know, uh, the, the policy of non-interference. But um, We've always seen it uh, when it comes to China and, uh, you know, any, any, any policy that uh, will be taken that is considered anti-Beijing, uh, they, they will always come out strongly. And unfortunately, uh, the biggest target has always been uh, our standard gauge railway that they, they, they are funding and actually are running. So, yes, uh, I don't believe um, China really uh, is sincere when it comes to saying it has this policy of non-interference. Uh, because um, there are always those uh, underlying hidden cards that they have that uh, normally they'll pull out and uh, we, we backtrack on a lot of policies we want to push forward. How are Kenyan consumers seeing this whole controversy? I mean, is, is there a, a feeling among Kenyan consumers that, okay, we're willing to pay more in order to, to support local fish? Or are they just like, why is this fish so expensive? I'll be honest. Um, we've uh, There are two stories we've done. Uh, I'll... Uh, I, I need to get their links. And one of them was about um, the safety concern, because uh, when the president spoke about the safety, uh, we did an investigative piece where we went to different points, um, Mombasa, Nairobi, and also Kisumu, purchased some of these fish, uh, took them to three different laboratories just to try and check uh, the chemical contents. And um, the results were astonishing. Uh, we, we found things that were not supposed to be in the fish, uh, mercury, lead, and all that. Um, in, in, in some batches, actually, the levels were higher than uh, allowed. And of course, um, trying to bring that out, you know, it, it, it brings the uproar and, you know, the concern amongst the citizenry and all that. But on the other hand, again, uh, you know, we are looking at a citizenry that is hard-pressed economically. Uh, I mean, uh, naturally, a lot of us will go for what is uh, we are able to afford. Uh, as, as, as much as we want to... Uh, get the nutritional value of this fish, uh, 
the local fish is, is, is not affordable to a lot of Kenyan households. It's, it's just too expensive. Again, uh, the reason being um, the same middlemen that uh, Ch- the Chinese have kicked out of uh, the, the coastal are, are the same ones, uh, you know, are controlling the fish trade. And the moment we have middlemen, uh, the, the, the cost of fish is, is, is so high. Um, when the fisherman sells the fish to the brokers by the lake in uh, Kisumu, uh, that, that's the lakeside city, uh, that fish that uh, I'll end up buying for $6 is only $2. Um, there's no value added in that fish except for transportation costs. You know, uh, transporting it uh, 400 kilometers uh, does not uh, triple the, the, the cost of, uh, you know, a single, a, a single piece of, of, of fish. So for us, um, as, as much as uh, we would like to consume the local fish, I believe uh, it, it's still out of reach. So the problem here for President Kenyatta is that he doesn't win either way, because if he cracks down on Chinese tilapia imports, then he's going to piss off the Chinese and suffer potential problems in other aspects of his relationship. Maybe it's the, maybe the SGR loan or, or, or other parts of the trading relationship. And if he, if he doesn't crack down, then it hurts the local fishermen who can't compete with Chinese imports. And if he does crack down, then... Kenyan consumers have to pay more for fish, which is not good. What do you do? Definitely, he's facing that double-edged sword. And uh, he, what you do is what he's done. You know, uh, you would rather have uh, the Beijing masters happy than uh, the locals. I mean, uh, uh, the, the, I mean, China has uh, a lot of sway in, in a lot of uh, the, the dealings we have. Uh, when you look at uh, the, the, the structure of our loans, uh, the external loans that uh, we owe. Uh, China is the biggest uh, creditor to Kenya. So yes, they, 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 they hold the bigger stick and uh, we just have to align uh, irrespective of, uh, you know, uh, the after effects of that on the economy and the, you know, the local man. But at the same time, the issue of the, the health concerns around the imported farm Chinese fish is really serious. I mean, you know, kind of mercury is, is a big problem with, with fish as a whole, but it's, you know, and it's, it's really bad news, uh, particularly for children. Um, so, you know, is, are, are there moves for more aggressive testing and enforcement, um, you know, from, from the Kenyan government? Is, you know, is, is there some kind of safeguard that, that Kenyan consumers can use to feel safe about the, the particular fish they're buying? Unfortunately, there is none. You know, um, I mean, when we published uh, our investigative series, uh, the interesting bit was that uh, our National uh, uh, Bureau of Standards actually came gun blazing at us and saying, hey, no, we don't allow uh, unsafe fish in the market. But we told them, uh, we took these samples to, you know, different established institutions. And these are government-owned uh, and also academic institutions. And uh, they tested this for us. So, um if uh, the standardization uh, body is the first one to, you know, uh, come out and uh, not be amused by such reporting, uh, we, we really don't feel like uh, they will do much. And also, again, you know, we, we are importing uh, in uh, a lot of tonnage. And uh, of course, as, as, as I know you understand, when it comes to testing, it's only done on sample sizes. So it, it, it's never really indicative, again, of, uh, you know, uh, it being okay. So, as it is, I, I really can't say uh, nothing, I mean, anything is, is being done to, to, to ensure that uh, we feel we are taking uh, this fish and it, it's okay for, for our health. Well, that was an amazing investigative report. We'll put a link to that report in the show notes, and it really highlights the incredible work that 
you and the Nation Media Group team do and the important work that you've done on investigating uh, corruption in the in the Standard Gauge Railway deals with uh, China Road and Bridge Corporation, um, poor management in the China Road and Bridge Corporation uh, over the years. That's all come through Nation Media Group investigative reporting, and it really just shows the power of great journalism. The article is COVID, Chinese dealers drive Kenyan seafood traders out of business. It's part of a series of articles over the past few years that the Nation Media Group has done looking into the China-Kenyan fishing relationship, which is, as we pointed out, very complicated. It doesn't have any simple answers to it. So if you approach this with an with a mindset that says, here's what you need to do, you're going to run into a lot of different problems, as Alan pointed out. Alan Olingo is an editor, the regional editor, in fact, at Nation, who also writes for the East African, and he does business and foreign policy writing there. Alan, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and to walk us through all of the details on this. What's the best way for people to find you on Twitter. Uh, my handle is uh, at Alan Olingo. Excellent. Well, we're looking forward to following you on Twitter and to continuing following you and uh, your excellent reporting uh, at Nation and the East African newspaper. Again, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much, uh, Eric. Well, Kobus, that is, to me, the China-Africa relationship in a nutshell. There is no simple answer the good and the bad sit side by side. So the good is that the Chinese are providing fishermen, particularly in the lobster sector, with an enormous opportunity, a huge market, lots of demand. They're prepaying for a lot of their products. And that's fantastic for the fishermen, or the lobster fishermen at least. The middlemen are getting screwed, but that to me is the nature of business. And if they are violating a law and a regulation, then that is up to the Kenyan government to enforce. And then on the tilapia side, you're seeing the asymmetry in the relationship. That at the end of the day, China never has to compromise in its relationship with African countries. That is just one foundational truth, that the, the African partner always has to make the compromise. You've never seen a, a Chinese compromise and Chinese concession. And on something as small as fish in Kenya, I mean, how big of a market can that possibly be for this enormous Chinese fishing industry. And they didn't make a tiny little compromise on that. Just, I, I just find this all so interesting because, again, the good and the bad sit side by side, and it really is an encapsulation of the China-Africa relationship writ large. I mean, you know, I, I might I might kind of differ slightly in, in the sense that the one space where, where we've seen kind of Chinese entities having to make compromise is if African governments have coherent laws in place and then insist on, impo on, on, on actually like acting out those laws. And what would be a good example of that? What's a good example? Well, you know, hmm. um, well, you know, I think the La, the Lamu port, for example, is, is is an example. You know, kind of the the the, the court the court decided, and that's where it ended. You know, um, the um, you know, like the the you know, I I think the 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 one line. The reason I'm saying this is is you know is that the the one line one always hears from from um, from Chinese diplomats is that Chinese businesses have to respect the laws of the particular country, um, and you know, and and but but I think that the the, the real problem is, and and this is a problem we we see up and down Africa, is that there frequently are laws on the books, but not the the kind of government muscle or political will to really impose those laws. Okay. But whose fault is that? That's certainly not the Chinese fault. I mean, yes, you can say it's the Chinese fault because they're taking advantage of a vacuum in governance. 
And we know, and one of the things that we've talked about over the years is that the Chinese stakeholders, players, whether it's the government or state-owned enterprises or private actors, tend to adapt their level of adherence to local laws depending on the quality of enforcement. So, for example, in Singapore and Sweden, we don't hear these problems. Never. Even in the United States, we never hear these problems because there is a regulatory enforcement mechanism that works consistently. Whereas in low governance environments, we see these problems all over the place. And the Chinese seem to be taking advantage of that in all sorts of different ways. I guess for me, I still haven't heard a compelling case of where the Chinese make real tangible compromises. And let's not forget that this fishing industry in, in, in China is subsidized by the government. So those prices are artificially low. Remember, we have had a number of conversations on the Chinese fishing industry and the distant fishing fleet, how fuel is paid for by the government or subsidized, at least in part, by the government. And that gives the Chinese fishing industry an unfair competitive advantage, so they're able to compete at that very, very low price. But I still haven't heard, I'm not pressuring you and putting you on the spot here, but I don't really hear a lot of or any concessions that the Chinese make with an African government. And regionally, ECOWAS you're talking about, East African Community, the African Union, those blocks to me are not very strong because there's not a lot of unity within those blocks to stand up. Each country's agenda seems to be one that says, we're going to negotiate bilaterally with the Chinese and we don't want to work as a block. That's been my reading of it. That's, you know, I think you're right. Um, they, they tend to kind of undermine each other um, because they because they, they, they frequently think of, of their primary competition being other African countries rather than, say, Bangladesh. Um, at the same time you know there, there's it's, it's also revealing for me of a, of a, a different kind of aspect of, of African life which is that there isn't unlike middle class dominantly middle class or rich countries there isn't necessarily such a, a strong kind of articulation of of uh, consumer rights as being a, a kind of a fundamental structuring mechanism of society, you know. So, so the fact that the fact that these con the consumers generally get a good, a better price from from the fact that there's this imports from China actually doesn't factor very highly in the discussion. Um, and then at the same time, there's so many. Um, there's this also not a, a particularly kind of a strong, you know, unlike a place like the US, for example, there isn't such a strong kind of, a, you know, a, like internalization of, of that logic that you mentioned of like, well, you know, this is this is capitalism, like things get disrupted, that's the way we grow. That kind of mindset isn't is actually not particularly popular in Africa. And so therefore, the, the fact you know, the, the situation of, but we were middlemen, and now our middleman position, which was a completely artificially produced position, Position, is now being disrupted by other middlemen, uh, kind of boohoo, you know, that, that that complaint carries a lot more weight, I think, in Africa, because it's seen as a disruption of, of, of a, 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 you know, a system that was intact, but, but you know, in, in a context where systems are generally so fragile, um, you know, so, in, uh, you know, kind of, ex you know, Unlike, for example, seeing it as oh, this is this is innovation that's gonna that's gonna improve efficiency in the market, or this is good for consumers, or even this is good for the fishermen. None of those things count for as much as things that things that, that used to work are now being disrupted. Um, so, so it's an interesting kind of shift in in emphasis. This, this is just my perspective. I'm not sure if that if other Africans would agree. Yeah, no, I think that's an interesting point, and it reveals a few of my own biases here that A, coming from the United States, and also B, here in East Asia and in ASEAN, where that kind of disruption is all the time. I mean, these are societies that are constantly just wrenching through change. 
and and there's no pity for the people who are left behind. And I guess in some respects, that's a commonality between U.S. culture and parts of this East Asian culture, which are very, very tough on, well, if you fall behind and you fall down, that's your fault because I'm here to make money. It's a very aggressive capitalism in that respect. It's that very kind of... The very kind of hardcore developmentalist way of thinking, you know, kind of which is which is different from different, I think, from from African societies where where frequently established relationships frequently count for count count for a lot more. Yeah, I mean, established relationships certainly count in this part of the world as well, but it is a much more, I think, as you're as, and I think you're right. I I hundred percent agree with you. But what I've seen here in Vietnam in the ten years that I've lived here, and then in the ten twelve years that I lived in China, is this. The, you know, this embrace of disruption, because when you look at Chinese development over the past 30, 40 years, it's been just gut-wrenching change year after year after year. And if there was any kind of sympathy for people who were left behind, they would never have been able to do what they were done. So they were able to do what they did because they just steamrolled through these relationships. So worker rights are not respected, you know, labor rights are not respected, environmental people, you know, conditions are not respected. You know, the idea of we're going to build a road here. Well, my house is here. Not anymore. It's not. We're building a road here. That's allowed China to build this massive amount of infrastructure super fast, but it comes at a very steep cost. Yeah, you know, like a, a good example of this is, is the situation of Uber in Johannesburg. So, you know, Uber, of course, there's a lot of problems with Uber. There's a lot of kind of like, like you know, kind of issues, labor issues and so on one could raise about Uber. But but when the, the, the particular industry that Uber disrupted in South Africa was the, the, the car-based meter taxi industry. And the, that was a very weak industry. Those those taxis sucked. They're like they're, They look terrible. Like, you know, it's one of those where you, you kind of see a hole in the floor of the cars, you, you know as you get in um you can see the road through the car um and you know they were late they were the, the the taxis broke down they they couldn't find you then uber stepped in it was cheap efficient easy you know kind of um and and dependable and the cars looked great and then the way that the that the meter taxi industry responded was not by trying to improve themselves in order to be to be more competitive they tried to disrupt uber's kind of launch by particularly by by attacking uber Uber, Uber drivers and kind of like in in some cases like kind of setting their their cars on fire, you know. That was <laughs> so, very so, much the same know, in and, France and, as well. By the way, that wasn't just South Africa. Yeah, that was in a number of European and, and countries the, too. Exactly, and and the complaint was you're disrupting our our neat little industry, and the 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 counter complaint of well your the, the, your meter taxis suck didn't count for that much in, 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 you know, kind of in, in the debate. So let me just bring everybody back to this scenario that I talked about in 2018 in the two-week or three-week span from mid-October to the first week of November of 2018 and how, again, this was the exercise of agency on the part of Kenya to restrict Chinese imports on fish and to see the brute force that the Chinese used to change that. And I use and I, I and I took this from a pre, my presentation that I give on showing how the asymmetrical dynamic of this relationship is the the size imbalance is just enormous. And as 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 Alan pointed out, the masters in Beijing, there's nothing you can do. There's really nothing you can do. And if the United States is not able to to really push the Chinese very hard, as we've seen in the Phase One Comprehensive Trade Agreement that has not been lived up to. Certainly Kenya won't be able to, and this is the most clear example of it. So I'll put a link, I'll put this presentation up 
on SlideShare somebody on somewhere so it's easy to access. And you can see I, I screen grabbed all of the headlines from those two weeks to show the TikTok, the timeline from those two weeks about how this progressed and how and I use it as an example again of to challenge the Chinese rhetoric on win-win because this is not win-win. And to hold those loans over them and to to threaten to 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 jeopardize the loans over phishing is nothing short of coercive. And so we're going to be talking about Chinese coercive diplomacy coming up uh, in May when we do an interview with Luke Patey, who has just has a new book. He's a scholar on China-Africa relations. He's a scholar on China. And he's come out with a new book talking about Chinese coercive diplomacy around the world, in Australia, in other parts of the world. And this is, again, a case study. I don't know if it's in his book, but he certainly will will talk to us more about coercive diplomacy. And this is really, to me, a great example of it. Final thoughts to you today about Kenya, fish, China, Africa, all the things we talked about. I think there there is more research is needed. And, and you know, kind of I might hopefully do some of this research um, into how, into this kind of dual nature of Chinese companies, Chinese business, you know, as the way that they that they act both as commercial actors and as geopolitical actors. Um, and, you know, because because frequently, you know, just and, and this is just kind of you know, based on, on on kind of years of just of, of just reading China Africa coverage, but what one sees is is sometimes if there's if there's complaints about how Chinese companies act, one of the lines one sees from from government actors is like, well, you know, there's you know the the famous McKinsey number of this ten thousand Chinese companies in Africa. You know, it's impossible for us to track all of them. You know, they need to. You know, it's very important for them to just simply, you know, like you know, obey the laws of the land, in, in which which is code for you know shifting responsibility to to the local government rather than to to Chinese enforcement. So fine, but then you know, kind of when when any of these lobbies are then actually challenged, then you see the full apparatus of the state kind of kicking into gear, and and then there's no division. There's no division between the state and the company. You know, kind of the the state, like they're both China, they're both count, they're, they're both part of the same mon, mon, monolith. When you know, kind of, whereas in in, in other times, the, the, you know, there's a lot of daylight is kind of is, is being created between the state, the state and the company. I think I think that that dynamic can, demands a lot more unpacking. Well, it's interesting because here in Southeast Asia, and I thought you were going to go there with this with your comment, but you didn't. But it's very interesting because it shows a parallel: is that the Chinese fishing fleet, the distant fishing fleet, which is nominally private, acts as an extension of the Chinese maritime military forces. So right now, or for the past few weeks, there have been hundreds of Chinese fishing trawlers off the coast of the Philippines, intimidating the Philippines and occupying territory off the coast of the Philippines. There were hundreds of Chinese fishing trawlers off the coast of Ecuador not that long ago. And and again, so it's an extension in some respects of the state, but yet goes back and forth in a very fluid way, because then they say, no, 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 no. These are private fishing vessels operating on their own. There's plausible deniability there. But at the end of the day, in a place like the South China Sea, which is highly contested, when hundreds of fishing vessels mobilize, they are occupying territory. And it is, it's an intimidating presence. So it's interesting how that plays out in Chinese geopolitics in lots of different facets. 
Uh, so very, very interesting. Yeah, I mean the the you know the only the only thing one can one can say in in the end is that the that the seafood industry as a whole is a nightmare. You know, and it's it's one of it's one of those things which is which is the the worst you know kind of like most annoying kind of tick in in left wing politics is that that thing of like well everyone should just be a vegan you know it's but it, this this is an example of where that's probably well, true. That's a good re- this is a good case. We didn't get a chance to talk about what's been going on in West Africa, in Liberia, Ghana, Senegal, where over the past year there's been a drama. Go, uh, unfolding about the licensing of distant fishing fleets and fishing vessels from China. Liberia last summer took a very strong line. Senegal also refused to license some Chinese trawlers. Ghana, as we've reported on a number of occasions over the years, is showing itself to be quite weak in this regard and not enforcing the psycho-fishing issues that we've talked about. We've got a number of interviews on that on our website, so I hope you'll check it out. If you look for the tag fishing on our website... We've got a lot of coverage, uh, mostly on West Africa, so I'm glad that we had a chance today to focus on Kenya because it does look like it's a pan-African issue. Uh, There's not a sea around anywhere on the coastline of Africa that does not have the Chinese fishing fleet somewhere close by or engaged somehow. So I'm hoping that over the next few months, we're going to be able to look at this issue from different angles and different perspectives. So that'll do it for this show. Uh, These are the kinds of things, again, I remind everybody at the end of every show about our newsletter. We're so proud of, of, of the work that goes into it. It's a labor of love, and we call it a daily China-Africa intelligence briefing, and that's what it is. It's providing analysis and the latest news, and in not like a Substack newsletter, and I gotta be honest with you, I'm not a huge fan of Substack newsletters because there's just endless amounts of text, and it's just so boring, but we're trying to capture all of the discussions that are going on about China, Africa, and the Global South using tweets, YouTube videos, Uh, academic research papers and putting lots of visuals in there so you can actually just scan through it quite quickly every day. We're reading through all the academic papers and just providing you five, six bullet points so you don't have to necessarily read through it all but can walk away with a few takeaway points. So try it out for 30 days for free. See if you like it. We think it's really great and we're really proud of it and we'd love for you to join our growing reader community around the world who subscribes to this newsletter. Go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. And if you like it, enter the promo code podcast at checkout and we'll take 20% off just because you are a loyal podcast listener of ours and we really appreciate that as well. So that'll do it for this edition. Until next week, for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. continues online head over to facebook.com slash china africa project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow the guys on twitter eric's at yolanda and you can find kobas at stadenesk for more information about the china africa project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief go to chinaafricaproject.com project.com